Welcome to New Life with Adam Camp. This podcast is a ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in LaGrange, Georgia. Please visit us on the web at rosemontchurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. as everybody is enjoying spring break. <clears throat> For those of you um, who don't maybe know me, maybe you're new to the church. If you are new here, if this is your first time, we just want to say thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, my name is Jeremy Phillips. I'm pastor for adult ministries here at Rosemont. Our senior pastor who usually preaches uh, and shares the word with us on Sunday morning is currently serving with a team in Guatemala and Uh, I know that they would appreciate if you would pray for them as they serve there. For the past couple of weeks, we um, have been walking through the book of Mark, and I don't want to assume where you are in your relationship with the Lord. I don't want to assume your familiarity with the Bible. I don't want to assume your understanding of what we do when we gather here on Sunday as followers of Jesus to worship together So before we begin, before we dive into Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, that's Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, I just want to set, lay some foundational truths for us. Mark is a gospel. Gospel means good news. And for us as believers, it is good news because it tells us about the life of Jesus. It tells us about his ministry. It tells us about his purpose in coming and redeeming us, a people, for himself. And so I pray in this moment, as we we open the gospel, that we don't just see it as, as another checking of the box, as another activity that we go through, that we would see this as a holy moment for us to celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ. As we sat there and we sang When I stand before the throne at last, his blood will plead my innocence. I will worship him with holy hands and raise the song that never ends of Jesus Christ, my righteousness. This is a shadow of what is to come. This is us expressing the joy in our hearts at the good news of Jesus Christ. And that we wouldn't walk into it lightly. That we wouldn't just see it as another opportunity to say we attended church. But that we would come with expectation and anticipation and delight in our hearts. Because this is God speaking to us through his word. Through the ministry of his son. It It is not insignificant. But this is a holy moment. Before him. And we, we can leave here. We can have hope that we leave here transformed by the renewing of our minds. Transformed because of the good news of Jesus Christ. Transformed by his grace and by his mercy. And I just pray that we would do that in this moment. That we would 
walk into this moment with anticipation and expectation for God to speak to us. For this is his word given to us, breathed out is what the scripture says about it. His breath, it should hit us like a wind, like a fresh wind on our soul. And so with that in mind, let's turn to Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. And then we will pray. Verse 45. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, and after he had taken leave of them, he went to the mountain to pray. And when evening came and the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land... He saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just turn to you in this moment, grateful for who you are, that you are the creator and sustainer of all things. That you know the very numbers of the hairs on our heads, so we acknowledge that you understand the circumstances of our lives, that there is no detail that is outside of your sovereign control. That you are sovereign over everything. The hurt and the pain, the joy and the celebration. And we know that even in this moment, you are at work. Work in our lives. And so we just pray that you would make us receptive soil. To receive your word, that it would be planted deep in our hearts. That we might bear fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. That we might be set on fire to go forth and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. That you would transform us in this moment. We submit ourselves to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think many of us are probably familiar with this story. At least we've heard references to it. We, we talk about one of those people. You ever know those people that just kind of seem like they can do everything? And you start to list, well, they can do this and they can do this. And then somebody will undoubtedly probably go, well, I suppose they can walk on water as well. And we say that because we know that this is not an ordinary thing. It is an extraordinary thing. And we may be familiar enough with this story that as I read it, you thought, I think there was a detail missing. Because usually when we tell the story, we include what Mark includes, I mean Matthew includes in his gospel, in Matthew chapter 14, and that's the part where Peter steps out in faith. And let's read that because we're going to talk about it as well. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 26, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and was afraid, and he, and he began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? 
And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You can also read John's account in John chapter 6. But it seems like oftentimes when we talk about this story, we want to focus ourselves on Peter. And we want to preach about um, how to get out of the boat. How to step out in faith. How to not allow the storms of life to distract us. How to be calm in the midst of a storm or five steps to walking on water. And I get the applications. And I understand those types of messages, but I think if that's our focus, that we're missing the central point of this message. And we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus do this? Why did Jesus walk on the water? Was it to show us the faith of Peter? Or the doubting of Peter? And we tend to to make the story about ourselves, and, and we think, if only I believed more, I too could walk on water. If only I just trusted more, the storms wouldn't be so bad. But that is not the point of Jesus' actions here. That is not the ultimate meaning of the text because I believe in this event, Jesus is revealing to us something about himself so that we can see him more clearly and be transformed by who he is. Jesus is the focus of this text, and I believe we're going to see that today. In fact, we see something happen in the lives of the disciples as a result of what happens in this story Where Jesus walks on the water. You can look if you would in in John chapter 6. At the end of what we just read. Mark gives us a little commentary to the state of the disciples. After Jesus has fed the 5,000. Mark chapter 6 verse 51. Here's what he says. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. These disciples had hardened hearts. They didn't understand the feeding of 5,000. So then Jesus goes on to walk on the water, makes his way to Capernaum, and then he begins to give them a full explanation of why he multiplied the, the, the loaves. Because it teaches us that he is the bread of life. He is the one who gives bread that is eternal and that fully satisfies. And as he begins to explain that to them, he knows the hearts. He knows their hearts are hardened. In John chapter 6, 26, here's what Jesus says to the crowds as he teaches. Truly I say to you, you are seeking me because you saw signs. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. You're just happy because your bellies were full. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then Jesus explains that he is the bread of life who completely satisfies. It's about him. That's what the the miracle was pointing to. He was the focus. And then in 66, we see something happen as he explains the meaning of the miracle. After this, many of the disciples turned back And no longer walked with him. They left. When they realized it wasn't about them, that it was about Jesus, it was about Jesus revealing something about himself, they were gone. So then Jesus says to the twelve, those whom he met in the boat in the middle of the storm, in the story that we're studying today, he says, do you want to go away as well? Remember, they had hardened hearts. After he multiplied the the loaves and the fish. He said, so are you going to go as well? Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and you have, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Something happens in that moment on the sea where they go from hardened hearts to fear to transformed faith. They go from hardened hearts to fear to faith. So what is it that happened? I believe that Jesus uses the storm to bring his disciples and us to a greater revelation and understanding of himself. And that is what makes all the difference. The way that we live here viewing Jesus is what's going to make the difference in our lives. Anything other than that will not transform us and we'll walk out here and we'll live the same lives that we've been, li- we've been living. Because Jesus transforms. He is the Son of God. And so let us be transformed by who he is. Point number one. We can trust that the Lord is always at work. We can trust that the Lord is always at work. Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. It's interesting, if you think about what's just happened, Jesus has just fed fifteen to 20,000 people. And the crowd is ready to make him king. They're ecstatic. They're ready to have this great moment to put him up on their shoulders and to overthrow Rome. And Jesus disperses the crowd and sends his disciples on. Any other religious leader would take in the moment to gather them and to fulfill his agenda. But that was not Jesus. Because Jesus knew that he had a task to complete. He knew that he had a purpose for what he was doing. And that's why in John 17, 4, the prayer of my life, Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus never built a big church building. Jesus didn't fly around the world to share the gospel, but he did exactly what the Father called him to do. And his eyes were set on that. And he would not be overthrown or led astray by the whims of a crowd or the misunderstandings of the disciples, but he fixed his eyes on the task at hand. So with that, Jesus sends his disciples out in obedience because he is at work. Danny Aiken said that the crowds want to make him king. However, it is neither the time nor the means whereby he would receive his kingdom. A throne awaits him, but there is a cross on the way. And the crowd missed it. They thought it was about them in that moment, and it was all about Jesus. And sometimes we miss it. Sometimes we want to make it about ourselves, and it's about Jesus. I have an illustration of this in my own life. In fact, it's not an illustration of me. It's an illustration of my wife. I'm a little nervous with her sitting right here. It's easier on the first service. When I went overseas to serve in Southeast Asia, I was single. I knew God had called me to singleness. I was gladly serving him. And I had been there for about a year. 
and went to this meeting that happens annually. And when I went to the meeting, I can take you to the very spot in the back of the conference room where I was standing in front of me was this girl with her back turned to me. And I didn't really notice anything, but somebody wanted to introduce her to me. And all of a sudden, my wife turned around. Man. And I knew. I kid you not, I knew that's the woman I'll marry. And I asked God, is it okay? Can I, can, I, can I just talk with her? Can I pursue her in this relationship? But I had been called to singleness at that point. I knew that this was what I was to be doing, and he had work for me. And I heard the voice of the Lord clearly say, no, it is not time. And every year for the next four years, she would come back to Southeast Asia to see her parents, and we would meet up, and I would ask the Lord, is now the time? And every time he would say no. Four years to the day, or about the time, I'm at the same hotel, standing outside. I can take you to the very spot. It's kind of a courtyard, and I'm looking across, and all of a sudden, the glass doors open up. Kenny G begins playing. The breeze of the tropical sun just goes, and it's da na 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 And I'm just, is this it, Lord? Is this, is this time? And he said, yes. And I said, yes. And so I, I began to pursue this relationship with my wife. And I told her the story. Four years I've been praying about this. And Jamie, I, th- I think she just, I don't know if she was looking at it. I, I don't know how she told me, but she, we met in 2006. She totally missed it. Here I am absolutely smitten. And she has no clue that she's even met me four years earlier. But God's grace is good. She missed it. But we got married. And sometimes in life, we, we just we miss it. And the disciples were missing it. Let's look back at verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat to go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Why? Because he was at work. And he sends them out. Where does he send them to? Into the middle of a storm. Jesus sends his disciples into a storm. He's not unaware. We can't miss this fact. We can't miss this point. We have to receive this lesson and allow it to transform us. That sometimes we are sent into the middle of a storm, not for our purpose, for for his purpose, for his glory, and for our good ultimately. And that doesn't mean that it's going to be easy, but he is sovereign over the situation and he sends them out. He sends them out into the dark of a night in a small boat where the waves are going to crash, where the fear is going to be palatable, where it's going to be so real, where they're going to think that they're not going to survive. He has purpose. Why? Because he is at work. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that God has a purpose for the trials in our life? That even he can reign sovereign over The things that bring us difficulty and pain and strife and have a purpose for it. Spurgeon says this, their sailing was not merely under his sanction. He didn't say it's okay if you go. But by his express command, they were in the right place and yet they met with a terrible storm. We can trust 
that the Lord is always at work for his glory and in turn our good. Our role is to be obedient, trusting that he is at work. And obedience doesn't mean that the road is going to be easy. It doesn't mean that we won't face difficulties. No, Jesus' destination is the cross where he will give his life, where he will be betrayed, where he will sweat blood, where he will be crucified. This is our example. He doesn't necessarily call us to the easy road, but he calls us to the only road that is worth it. That is to take up our cross and follow him. And that's why he is our example. Philippians 2, verse 5. We're told to have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and would give his life on the cross. That's why we look to him. He is the picture of humble submission and obedience. And we can do that because we can know that he is always at work. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us to run with endurance the race set before us. Why? Because we're fast runners. Why? Because we can handle it. Why? Because our endurance is great. No, because we need to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We serve a Savior who gave his life in obedience, and we have to be willing to give our life in obedience to him, even if it's uncomfortable. Why? Because he's at work. He's at work to bring about his great purpose. That's why Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot gain to keep what he cannot lose. And we have to understand that the command of Jesus doesn't mean the easy road. But when he commanded us to go and make disciples in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he gives us two promises in that verse. In verse 18, he says, All authority... In heaven and earth has been given to me. So when we go, we go in the authority of King Jesus. We go as his ambassadors. We go under his sovereign rule. And that's why we can confidently walk into any situation because he is king. And then at the end of the verse, I mean, at the end of the passage, what does he say? And I will be with you always into the end of the age, even to the end of the age. We go in his authority. And we go with his presence. And we know he's always at work. Why should we hold back? And in this passage, we see one thing about the way God works, about the way that Jesus works. Verse 46 says that after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. Think about Jesus sending the disciples into a storm, and then he goes to pray. Surely we think about his role as the great intercessor, as our great high priest who intercedes for us. And we don't know what he prayed that night, but we know other prayers that he prayed for his disciples and even for us. And we see in Luke 22, verse 31, where he's going to tell Peter that you will deny me. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. I believe he prays the same prayer for us that our faith may not fail. 
John 17, in his great high priestly prayer, if you ever read through it, he not only prays for his disciples, but for the future church. And here's some things that he says. He prays that we would know him, the only true God. He prays that we might be one as he is one with the Father. He prays that we might be joy, that he, we might have his joy fulfilled in us, that we might be kept from the evil one, that we might be sanctified by his truth, that we might be where he is. And then we see Paul in Romans chapter 8. Let us know that that wasn't just a prayer then, but it's a prayer that continues on now. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? It should transform us to know that Christ intercedes for us even at this moment. Before the Father, petitioning on our behalf. And so, with that, we can trust that the Lord is always at work, even in this moment. I don't know what trials, what difficulties, what situations are going in your life, but would you just acknowledge that God is at work even in that moment? Because He is bringing about His redemptive plan. You know how we know it? We read Revelation 21. It happens. It won't be thwarted. He's already told us how it will end. And he will bring that end about. So number one, it is the Lord is always at work. Number two, it is not about our perception or our circumstances. Verse 47. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them, but when, he saw him walking on, when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. He sends them out at evening. That's between 6 and 9 p.m. He comes to them in the fourth watch of the night. That's sometime between 3 and 6 a.m. Do the math. Six to 12 hours, they struggle, and he's not unaware. Six to 12 hours, they experience what is described as straining at the oars. They are pressing on in torment and in anguish. And in the span of that six to 12 hours, they only come three to four miles. It's that difficult of a journey. The average person can walk about three miles an hour. In six hours, in a boat, rowing, they get three to four miles. So for at least six hours, they have fought against the wind. They were likely fighting against themselves. They were experiencing the darkness of the night. The waves were about to capsize them. These seasoned boatmen were not unaware of what could happen if the storm were to overtake them. But I wonder if at that moment, did their minds go back to Mark chapter 4 when Jesus calmed the storm? When they were experiencing the same situation, only this time Jesus was with them. And he stands in verse 39, chapter 4 of Mark. He says, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. 
And he said to his disciples, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In that moment, did they think only if Jesus was with us, we would be okay. And they just succumbed to their perception. They succumbed to the circumstances that maybe there was no hope. But here's the reality. In that moment, Jesus was there. Verse 48, it says he saw that they were making headway painfully. And then he came to them walking on the water. He was in the midst of it. He was with them. And all Jesus had to do was stand on the shore and say, Quiet, be still. And the storm would have obeyed him. And it would have stopped. But he didn't. And why? We have to ask ourselves, why did he allow them to go through this? I believe he allowed them to go through this because he is always at work to bring about his purpose. He is always at work for his glory and our good. So Jesus was not unaware of their struggle. But that moment was not about their perception or their or their circumstances, or their understanding of what was going on. It was about Jesus. And I'm not trying to diminish the reality of the fear that they were experiencing in that moment. I'm not trying to diminish the reality of maybe the circumstances that you're going through, because it's real, and fear is a result of the fall. It's what we hear Adam say when the Lord says, why, why, did, you, uh, why, why did you not come to me? And he said, we, he, we hid ourselves because we were fearful. We realized we were naked. And so we experience it this side of the world, this side of redemption, as Christ is restoring all things. So I'm not trying to diminish or belittle anything that we're going through. It's real. And the disciples were in a real storm because Jesus sent them into a real storm in the real dark of night, in a real dangerous situation. And their circumstances were not brought about by their disobedience, but by their obedience. But he was at work. It wasn't about their understanding. It wasn't about their circumstances. It was about who he was revealing himself as in that moment. 30 years later, Peter would write to a struggling church in Asia Minor, and here's what he would say. Now just imagine him remembering this situation. 1 Peter 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Trials are difficult, Peter says. It's not going to be easy. But is it worth it if it shows you where is my faith really placed? Where are my eyes really fixed? Peter says, welcome the difficulties if it strengthens your faith and draws you closer to Jesus. 
because he had experienced that. He had been transformed from a hardened heart to fear to faith. Paul David Tripp says this, God will take you where you have not intended to go to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God will take you where you have not intended to go to produce in you what you could not achieve on your own. God cares more about your soul and about you knowing Him than your comfort in a situation. And maybe, just maybe in the difficulty, He's revealing Himself to you in a very special way, just as He did to the disciples on that night. Because Peter understood the grace of God then. Matthew 14, 30. But when he, that is Peter, saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Peter knew because he'd experienced the saving mercy of the Lord. He knew that the Lord is always at work. He knew that it wasn't about his perception or it wasn't about his circumstances. Point number three, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. When Peter cried out in his doubts, Jesus reached down and saved him. When Peter was in the midst of a storm with the disciples, it was Jesus who came to him. When Jesus got into the boat, it was Jesus who sent him. It is all about Jesus. And we can't help, or at least I can't help, but think about the great storm in our life, and that is the sin that separates us and leaves us alone on a dark and stormy sea, separated from our Creator. And Jesus crossed the water, purchased our victory, and redeemed us and brought us back. It is about Jesus. And so what do we learn about Jesus from this story? Number one, he is sovereign over our circumstances. Verse 45, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go. He sent his disciples into a storm, but he had a purpose for doing so. He wasn't unaware of their struggle or difficulty, but he was with them in it. Number two, he intercedes for us. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And he still prays and intercedes for us. Number three, he cares about and is with us in our distress. Verse 48, he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. He doesn't stand on the shore and hurl condemnation at that and say, come on, fellas, let's go, row harder. It's not that bad. You're just weak. No, he comes to them. He crosses the wind and the waves. He enters into the storm and he redeems them. That's why Tim Keller wrote this. If the side of Jesus bowing his head into the ultimate storm is burned into the core of your being, you will never say, God, don't you care. And if you know that he did not abandon you in the ultimate storm, what makes you think he would abandon you in a much smaller storm you're experiencing right now? 
And someday, of course, he will return and steal all storms for eternity. If you let that penetrate to the very center of your being, you will know he loves you. You will know he cares for you. And then you will be able, then you will have power to handle anything in life with poise. He cares about us in our distress. And the final thing that I believe we see that it is all about Jesus is we see his divinity. We see that he is the word of God come, become flesh. That he is the son of God. There's some interesting details in Mark that we saw uh, kind of alluded to last week as we Adam compared Exodus and, and the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Look at verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, here's the phrase, walking on the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't see many men walking on the water. And in fact, if we look in Scripture, there's only one to whom that attribute is given. And Job is the one who declares it to his friends. Job chapter 9, verse 8. Look at these two verses and think about this passage. Job chapter 9, verse 8. Speaking of God, Job says, Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Verse 11. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive them. Walking on the water, passing by. Job 38. God responding to Job. Declaring who he is, ask Job, Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? And the answer is emphatically no. Only the sovereign Lord has done that. So in Mark 4, after Jesus calms the storm, the disciples ask this question. It says that they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And here Jesus gives the answer, I am the Lord. I am the Son of God. And that's why at the end, that's what they say. Surely, surely you are the Son of God. And then we read this other little peculiar part. So you may not fully be convinced of that. Let's look at one other thing. Then we read in verse 48. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. The phrase doesn't make any sense. Where's Jesus headed? To them. Why is he going out? They're in distress. Where's his destination? Them. But it says he meant to pass by them. So is he going to them or is he passing by them? What's the point, what, what's the point in that? Look at Exodus chapter 33, verse 18. Moses is speaking to God and interceding for the people of Israel. And Moses makes this bold request of the Lord in that moment. It says, Moses said, please show me your glory. Reveal to me who you are. He wants confidence that the Lord will never leave him or forsake him. That he won't abandon the children of Israel as he's led them out of captivity. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you 
and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand in the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. God revealing himself by passing by. And then when Elijah is hiding in a cave and the people are seeking to kill him and he's in distress, he's in a moment where he doesn't know what's going on. Here's what the Lord says to him in 1 Kings chapter 19. And he said, that is the Lord said to Elijah, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and a strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was, in the wind, was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of his whisper. One commentator says this. When Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, he does something differently than the revelation of God in the Old Testament. He intends to make the mysterious... God of Job, visible and palpable, as it had not been and could not have been in former generations. The God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but unknowable face to face, is now passing by the believers in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus walking on the water to his disciples is a revelation of the glory that he shares with the Father in the, in the compassion that he extends to his fathers. It is a di- divine epiphany in answer to the earlier bafflement when he, claimed, when he calmed the storm, who is this? That's why we see in 2 Corinthians, it says, let light shine out of darkness. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's why John 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. We see Him revealing Himself, that He is the Lord. And one more point, last one. Verse 49 When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. He tells them to be of courage. Take heart. Why? Because they're strong enough? Because they can make it through? He says, take courage. It is. Is I. In Greek, that phrase is ego eimi. I am. Look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, Ego, am I? I am 
who I am. And he said, tell the people, say to the people of Israel, Ego am I. I am has sent you to me. Jesus declares, Ego am I in the storms of their life. Exodus 33, 19. And, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim my name, Ego am I, the Lord, the divine name of God. He's not just a mere prophet who reveals the word of God to us. He is the word that became flesh. He's not just the priest who takes a sacrifice on our behalf, but he is the priest who became the great sacrifice for our sin. He is not the king who is just worthy of our devotion. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He is Jesus. It is not about you and it is not about me. It is not about our perception and it is not about our circumstances. It is about one thing. It is about Jesus and Jesus changes everything. Let me just give us a word of caution. This came to me and I feel like I need to, to say this. If we walk into this building and we're impressed with anything other than Jesus, we will have failed. It is Christ Jesus alone. This is used to exalt and to glorify him because he is the Lord and yes, he is leading us through this, and we are going to embrace it, but we are going to use it for his kingdom and for his glory, that his name may be proclaimed. That from that pulpit, we may preach the good news of Jesus Christ and be transformed. It's not about us. It's not about circumstances. It's not about perception. It's about Jesus, and Jesus changes everything. And that's why Peter, he went from the point of a hard heart to fear and to faith. Where is your faith? Is it in anything other than Jesus? I promise you it will fail. But if you will put it in Jesus, he will bring peace in the midst of difficulties. Let us exalt his name. Let's pray. Father, I just pray. I pray that this moment would not be about us, but about us listening and seeing more clearly you and who you are. That this moment will be about you glorifying yourself. Speak clearly to us through your spirit. Illuminate our minds to the truth of your word. And let us be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And let everything we do, everything that we walk into be done for your kingdom and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would stand, if you need to come and pray, if you have something on your heart, feel free to use this altar and we would love to pray with you. Or maybe you need to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Let this moment be about God's work in your, your life. love so deep is washing over me. Your face.
Thank you for joining today's sermon. We would love to hear how today's message blessed you. Use the Contact Us link on our website at rosemontchurch.org. God bless.